Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. Are you about to start a podcast or producing a podcast and tired of doing the editing yourself? We have produced over 1,000 daily shows and the production team that I've created, they're now available to produce shows for you as well. We can do as little or as much as you need from finding and communicating with guests, preparing introductions, to editing the audio and video. You will sound better, have a more professional presence, and be able to spend your time doing other valuable tasks on your business. Let me know you're interested by emailing me directly at Whitney at LifeBridgeCapital.com. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Stefan Svetkov. Stefan is a multifamily investor across several strategies and real estate analytics speaker, having published his own metrics in the field. He's a managing partner at Papella Capital, a real estate investment firm and founder of Envy Analytics an investor-geared real estate analytics system. He's also the organizer of the Finance Meets Real Estate webinar series. He's a financial engineer. He has a degree in finance, and he started with a fourplex and living in it, but then has seen the need for more data and how data can just help shape our decisions to have a much more accurate investing model and just really uses that data to drive the principles for selecting the markets, selecting the projects, the specific properties and those things. He goes into great detail around those things today. So I know you're going to learn a lot and enjoy the show. Stefan, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on. I know you have a skill set around data that we all need to be learning more about personally to help our own businesses in real estate in a big way. So I feel like it's so important. It's kind of the wave of the future, no doubt. It's been here for a while, but it's only going to get more complicated, I think, but the more data that we have. And so I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation. But tell us a little bit more about your business, your current capital business, and just around the data stuff, how you got into this. Yeah. Hi, Whitney. Thanks for having me. So I'm a financial engineer by background originally, just to give a little bit of background to your audience. So, so I had a career in finance. So I used to manage $90 billion portfolio jointly with colleagues for a large insurance company. It was a derivatives portfolio. So my background was in mathematics and then financial engineering. And in the recent years, I've switched to being a real estate investor. So I do like my own projects. I haven't syndicated so far. I do like different flips, buy and holds in the New York City area. So I started by purchasing a fourplex first and kind of like sort of house hacking, you know, like pretty standard, you know, like living in one unit, renting out the other. So I thought, oh, that's pretty nice. And then I thought, okay, as a finance person, I thought, well, it's a great marketing efficiencies. And I was actually at the end of my finance career, I was thinking, should I go into cryptocurrencies for their, not for their volatility, but for their marketing efficiencies is then. There's a lot of arbitrage opportunities there. And I was working on, I probably had like a few thousand lines of code on like trading cryptocurrencies programmatically between markets. And that was one route I could take. And then I took, and then it was real estate. 
And then I thought, okay, the the ease as for capturing like market inefficiency in real estate and the magnitude of that is so much bigger and it's just so much easier for the effort, it seems. That it just seemed like a no-brainer as far as return on effort goes versus a more like trading system like in finance where you would actually need to build up your tech in an extremely good way, like in an extremely seamless way for it to work. And you would be like capturing like really small market inefficiency differences versus, you know, in real estate where percentages can be pretty high. So that was like, it just felt like as a finance person, okay, I'm going into an asset that makes me scary that the physical asset kind of sucks. It's like, there's a lot of hassles and, you know, a lot of problems and etc. But in terms of its financial properties, I really felt it was kind of like a finance person's dream playground, if you will. So that's, uh, I really liked. So, so that's how I got into it. And yes, yeah, you mentioned, so I've been focused on data-driven investing. I talk about it. I host my own webinar as well. And I try to educate people on using data-driven principles in their investment approach. And I can go into that more. Yeah. You know, you mentioned many hassles around this real estate investing, right? Or owning rentals. But you said it was a financial person's dream. Is that right? Yes. I think the finance properties, like somebody like me, I was always like very arbitrage oriented. So arbitrage, like your audience, like is sort of different seeking or it's considered riskless profits, not riskless, but sort of like this kind of time zero inefficiency. It's like the kind of thing of purchasing a real estate asset and having a 10%, 20% spread at time zero, right? Or something like that. So that's kind of what it was, was always my focus, what I liked as an investor. It wasn't so much waiting for market appreciation. And so this thing works really well in real estate. And I felt like in terms of capturing this and having also some of the income component to a trader like myself, because I was a trader, pretty much. I was a derivatives trader. So to a trader like myself, that was like really, really attractive. And it even felt like, why aren't more people doing it? Yeah, why aren't more people doing this? That's right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No doubt about it. It seems like the more I get into it, I feel the same way. It's like, oh, I got to tell more people about this amazing thing. If you haven't been in real estate before, it just seems like there's, you know, oh, I don't want tenants. I don't want to have to clean toilets, those things, right? But they obviously have not seen the bigger picture of real estate investing and having that mindset. But I want to jump into your specialty around data, of course. And let's jump into, I'm happy to take this any way that works best, just how you're thinking about it. But obviously the market, property selection, those things. I know you have some techniques around finding that data and how to use it. And let's jump in. Yeah. So two things I like to kind of stress on on that. One thing I talk about is the usage of valuation metrics in real estate. So valuation metrics give a perspective. So in finance, so there is a hedge fund manager, John Hassman. So he is a PhD in finance or economics, something like that. So John Hassman, his hedge fund is called Hassman Investment Trust. So they publish certain metrics where they try to assess if the the stock market is overvalued. And that's harder to be done in finance, especially now, since it's, as we know, it's like heavily driven by tech especially like the big tech companies, and they don't have a clear evaluation. Nobody knows what they're worth, right? So there's no evaluation whatsoever. But that has been like an attempt. So he has like a metric that is really intricate, like how he built it. But it's sort of an improved version of what would otherwise the attempt in finance be price earnings ratio. But because price earnings ratio okay, no longer works that well, 
since we have all that additional stuff and complication earnings for maybe distorted, et cetera. So he had like his own metric. So what they did in for real estate, I was trying to see, okay, after 2007, there were states like California, Arizona, and Florida that dropped 40, 50%. And then there were the states like North Dakota and even Texas that dropped like one to 4% only. And so I was trying to understand what was the driver of that. And so I was trying to see, okay, what has been the biggest predictor of downturns supposed to peak in the post-2007 scenario, which is a big market correction scenario. And so I was looking at different things. I was looking at foreclosure rates. And if some of you know, there's like a vendor called Atom Data Solutions. So they like the best foreclosure data in the US. So I was looking at, okay, foreclosures. I was looking at simply market volatility. I was trying to do like in finance, they call it sharp ratio, like risk-adjusted returns. Maybe some markets are disadvantages in risk-adjusted terms. And they tend to maybe do well in good times, but then they really crash it because they're not like really robust. And I was trying to look at things like that. And so what I found was really simple, actually. And it was that affordability deviations versus well-selected moving average historical window, but essentially really affordability, like price income ratio deviations is what seems to drive downturn supposed to peak. Say that again, what drives it? Affordability deviations. Okay. So like price income ratio deviations. What it means is it's not due to price income ratios themselves, but it's everything else. And if you take the deviation versus a moving average window, in fact, then that means it's not even everything else other than just price income ratio. It's everything else other than price income ratio and some other fundamental factor that sort of built into this moving average. And that can be then debated and like studied further as to what those are. And then like some studies of, well, cities that experience housing shortage, like San Francisco and Washington, et cetera, suggest that, okay, it's changes in like population to housing supply ratio drive affordability metrics further. So it's kind of aligned with like people's intuition where you have like a price income ratio is okay. So your house is worth five times the median household income in the town, right? So now if you have something like San Francisco, so in the past, probably the price, maybe, I don't know the exact figures for San Francisco, but let's say the price income ratio was five. And then at some point in the future, it's already at 20. That does not make a market like this overvalued. It's only changes versus this 20 that's going to make it overvalued. It's okay. That's already reflective of like the housing shortage that occurred there. Maybe it's not advantageous to live there. And it's really expensive for people to live there. But the fact that in absolute terms, it's not affordable doesn't mean it's overvalued. So it's like this kind of studies. So, so what I, and that's, and it's another comparison. So before 2007, so this has been done. It's not obviously something that I have invented. It's a simple procedure. What my value add was, calibrating it to the crash post 2007 actually showing that this was very predictive at the state level like affordability deviations versus a 20-year historical time moving average window were predictive to around 84 to 87 percent Pearson correlation so that was the predictability of actual downturn supposed to peak so what this means and then at the county level to about like 74%, so which is way worse. Like it's not, it's not so good, right? But still counties that we are doing like 3,000 counties in the US for 2,800 with the data set. So 2,800 counties and how were, they have this, let's say, percentage deviation in affordability and then that's how much they drop 
in that global post global financial crisis. And that correlation of the two is being like 74%. So that's extremely useful because if you look at like something like some of the metrics that real estate investment managers use, like job growth and population growth, et cetera, if you think of like population, how well it predicts prices. So at the state level, so if you take like, okay, we know that Texas and Florida are the big markets that have done amazingly, but how predictive has population alone been of prices? And it's actually 40% correlation. And then if you mix it with income, that's much higher and et cetera. So having something that has your downside risk predicted in, on a completely forward basis at the peak of the global financial crisis at uh, 74% at the county level is very strong. And at the state level, it's 80, like I said, 84 to 87. That was kind of my value. So this has been done by other people before. So there is... If you guys watch, I'm actually hosting Neil Bao at my webinar this period. And so he, one of the data sources he uses is Local Market Monitor. So Local Market Monitor is, is a service by Ingo Windsor. Ingo Windsor is a guy in Massachusetts who before 2007 was actually on CNN and he was sharing how certain markets in California, Florida, et cetera, are dangerously overbought. And he was essentially doing like price income ratios and he was seeing that. So that was known at the time because if one looks at the history of, if one tracks valuation metrics, and that's kind of what it was, like investors just have like a history of all their metrics at every time point. And if one does it, one would have seen that, okay, in 2002, 2003, the market was super fairly valued. And then over the course of two, three years, it became, in fact, overvalued by 2005, 2006 was already super overvalued over the course of just two, three years. That was something that is known. Now, one doesn't know the timing of when you know it's going to happen, but sort of a measure of your downside risk at every time point is available in a similar way available now. And I would argue like a, quite a fairly valued market, even though like governmental data is pretty lagging. And in fact, it's pretty much what I have is like end of 2020, where I have like all my different variables. So, it's, so it could change quickly. But generally, the current picture, like just for the audience from at least in my study, like what I have seen has been different. So there are a few, if we speak of states, there are a few states that show us overvalued. They're also the really well-performing states and they're not overvalued. Well, Idaho is the most overvalued, in fact, at about 25%. And then in this framework... It's over what? And then like about 25% Idaho. Yeah. In terms of just its price income deviation. Now, of course, Idaho has also been the very strongest price performer. So like Boise, Idaho in my data set is the strongest performing city out of 800 cities in America in this cycle. The way one knows this is by one needs to know like when the market was fairly valued to know what, how to start your time horizon to even know what appreciation has been. Otherwise, one doesn't even know what market price appreciation is. But when do you start? When is what is what are what are your time points? If we take, for example, Florida, and let's say Florida, and we decided maybe one can think a robust market exceeds its prior peak when we're like fairly forward in the current business cycle. Let's say one could think Florida being arguably the intuitively for investors like this, the only like super strong state in the eastern half of the US, right? In real estate terms, then one would think that they have exceeded their peak from 2007 and they sort of have, a, they're pretty much right there. They maybe just exceeded it 
but that started kind of distorts because they were heavily overvalued then by like 40-50%. And so, but once one takes like since fair valuations, then you have like the very clean picture of what price appreciation is. So Boise, Idaho is like the strongest, the very strongest price performer in the country and simultaneously has a, carries a higher downside risk at the moment. Does not mean that there are others. So in the state level, then less overvalued states, like in maybe like around 15% and 10 to 15% is like this Colorado and I think the state of Texas is at like 10% and Florida is around 9%. And that's at the end of 2020, so again, to share because governmental data is really lagging. So it probably could change a little bit upward, but, but the broad US real estate market has been fairly valued, close to 0% impact. The, in other countries, and there are studies like Niraj Shah, there was a study published in Visual Capitalist. He shared like different metrics. And then in those like US, okay, show this fairly valued, very consistent with what I see as well. Then Canada, very overvalued, Scandinavia, very overvalued, Australia, New Zealand, overvalued very much as well. And then UK to an extent, but US, no. And that has been the intuition of most investors as well so far with inflation, maybe arguably saying inflation, et cetera. And like, it could change. It's going to be interesting to see if it does change or not over the next two years. But the current state has been that. And so some of the really well, strongest markets are a little bit overvalued. Idaho is a bit more overvalued than them. It's a smaller state and it has had like an incredible boom. No question about it. Another thing is like if a market is or state or county or let's say more zip code is overvalued, does it mean that it's going to correct? No. So there are three scenarios one can say logically. So one is a price correction. So that's what happened after 2007. A second scenario would be, well, sort of prices growing not so strong in the future and incomes growing faster than that and kind of catching up. So sort of a st- stagnant prices, if you call it. And then a third scenario would be, well, income super growth. So third scenario, even for a, an overvalued market could be, the prices, in fact, continue to grow super strong. Incomes are growing in a super way. And so the overvaluation resolves. Those are different scenarios. So again, it doesn't mean if the downside predictor is there for a market, does it mean it's going to actually happen? No, but that's kind of in a correction scenario. That is like the best estimate that would correlate to the state level to 85%, which is pretty high. That's what we've seen like historically. Yeah, that's so much great information and just how you're looking at the data. And I mean, we could talk about this alone probably all day. And I was going to ask you about, you said the crash was predictable in 2007. I was going to say, what about now? And you highlighted on some of those things or compared to some of the current state of the market or current market anyway. Right. Yeah, it's very different. If you could like bring this more elementary to the listener and myself, just like where to find some of this data just a couple of key things that we should be watching right now as far as the data. So I do publish these metrics. I have an analytics LOC called Envy Analytics. So your audience can go to like get a free report, envyanalytics.com, get sample report. But as far as doing your own study, it's free data. It's available. So I use prices from FHFA, so Federal Housing Finance Agency, like for price histories and incomes are from Bureau of Economic Analysis. 
And then for population and housing supply data, use census. So those are the data sources. It's CSV data feeds available online. Anyone can do it. What they should look for is just trying themselves to get an intuition with the data, trying to get a sense of what has been and just trying to get like genuine predictiveness for what they're trying to predict. And also like if you're trying to predict downside, then those are your downside predictors. If you're trying to predict appreciation, then that will be different. Sure. With all the data that you know, give us your best prediction for the real estate market over the next six to 12 months. You know what's my best prediction if you say like this? So real estate shows autocorrelation. Autocorrelation means shows trend and momentum. So my best prediction for the next six to 12 months is the last six to 12 months. There's trend. So my best prediction for this year's growth in prices is, in fact, last year's growth in prices. So it can sound silly, but it works well. And the state of Florida autocorrelation, like this year price performance versus last year price performance is correlated to like 77%. So that's pretty decent prediction of prices. So that's what I would say as far as appreciation. One can do like more complex, like machine learning, like trend following models, they call it in finance and things like that, and try to do that. But really, if one just takes like the time series of prices in any market and just like does autocorrelation on them, and that's a pretty decent way and doesn't even need to know the job growth, population growth, et cetera, in markets. In just a few final questions, Stefan, any daily habits that you have that you're disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? Okay, so what has helped me on the investment side is this is just like market broad stuff, right? It doesn't help you invest. It doesn't help you pick properties. What has really helped me on the investment side is I do web scraping. I use it in my online marketing as well. I use it to do like web scraping, like data gathering, data mining, etc. Both for marketing, for my webinar, as well as for in the investment selection of properties. So what I would do, for example, so when I kind of start deviated from the pure residential space and been switching like towards, but in the residential space, let's say around the New York City area, I pull like 6,000 small multifamily properties and I would kind of have them all priced out at my computer. So that would be my approach to like what they call data-driven investing. And so that has helped me really a lot in my own investment to find opportunities that have outsized returns in either cash flow space or in just like value add, like equity gain. So that has really, really helped me. Another thing like I kind of like try to stress to to others is when one takes this approach, then it's not just like boring data. It's more like you can actually, the mindset is to automate the human function, but also human intelligence. So if you have, like if you're going to be underwriting properties and looking at the photos of those properties or reading the textual descriptions of those properties. So that is something that machine learning can do. Now there are companies like, I'm not associated in any way, like there is Foxy AI is a company in New York that does like image classification condition scoring for real estate images, for example. So that's a good way. So let's say if you have condition scoring, no longer maybe need to look at those images for some time for preliminary analysis. Now, later you will, but at least when you need to study like through thousands of listings, you can have that automated. And similarly for like textual descriptions, you can kind of get like condition scores of simply like having your code read those descriptions. Eventually we'll be able to automate all the data enough. We won't even have to think about it, right? (laughs) 
Well, it's difficult. I mean, you know, it's a physical asset. It's like there's many challenges. It's not easy to actually achieve. But I think where it's achievable is the preliminary analysis stage. And that's where you can kind of like you can scope what's of like what more properties like that. And that's very doable in off-market commercial multifamily, by the way. And I have a model I presented for that at my webinar for if people want to look it up for sort of like how to scope off-market commercial and like properties and try to assess which are the ones that have the most value out without even like there's no price income sheet you they're not on market you don't know anything about them you don't know what they cost even and you try to assess percentage-wise what's going to be the value are you going to make 30 percent price increase or like ny percentage increase based on their rental listings data Stefan, tell us how you like to give back i like to give back by like this podcast by offering my analytics mindset and like offering this capacity to people for free and sort of empowering them to think more and use better investment principles. In many cases, it's not even not necessarily so time efficient for me to do it or so profitable commercially to do it. But it's just, I think it's a good way to have quality content. And I do like LinkedIn posts on some of those topics as well, et cetera. So I kind of like try to have like quality content that people would actually benefit from. Awesome. Stefan, pleasure to meet you, have you on the show. I just think it's helpful for the listeners and myself to just be exposed to all the data that's available. I think oftentimes you don't even know some of that's available until you hear somebody talk about it like yourself, right? That's done all this research or maybe think about data differently than you have in the past depending on what it is and the accuracy of it and those things. So just grateful for you helping us think through that and just being a financial engineer and degree in finance. I think it's right up your alley to help people like us to think about these things in a better way and how to use the state of the best. But tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Yeah, so they can get in touch with me at uh, nvanalytics.com. So E-N-V-V-Y with wvanalytics.com. And I do some if they want to Word more about what they do. I try to help people on the education side, like mentoring wise as well. So they can reach to me there for that. Like I try to mentor people on analytics and data-driven investing. So you can also reach to me on LinkedIn, Stefan Svetkov on LinkedIn. That's a good way. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success. 